Turn your Bibles, we continue our Roman series in Romans chapter 13, a sermon entitled, Summed Up. Now, the summing of God's Word is to love your neighbor as you love yourself. That sums up the commandments of the Old Testament. Now, there is a new trend now. Everybody wanted to move to the cities, and now everybody wants to move back to the suburbs. And so I found an article in the Wall Street Journal. So you've bought a house in the burbs. Here's how to make good with your neighbors. Well, there are some things your neighbors would like you to know before you move into their neighborhood. You know, moving into a neighborhood is kind of like getting married. You marry not just the girl or the guy, you become connected to the whole family, don't you? Like your in-laws, your new neighbors will be watching you, waiting for you to mess it up. And they won't soon forget. The writer of the article said, my neighbors are still giving me grief about the year we left up our Christmas wreath until March. A shame we wear like a brownish, crumbly, scarlet letter O on our chest. The ways you can alienate your community are endless. You make too much noise. You own an aggressive pet. You drive too fast down the street. You cut down trees that don't belong to you. I don't know how that can make anybody mad. You act like a total Karen, whatever that is, but there's something one could do to act like a Karen. Failure to wave. Oh, you're walking down the street. Someone you don't know on their porch waves at you. You don't see it. Maybe you just want to keep exercising. You don't wave back. Or you wave back insufficiently. You lack enthusiasm in your return wave. They will start talking about you before your feet hit your own front door. He's stuck up. Is that the one from New York? I thought it must be. You see, when your neighbor waves at you, you better wave back like a beloved relative long lost has risen from the dead. And you were glad to see them. Well, and then there's the holiday decor issue, isn't there? Now, in some neighborhoods, some of you live on those streets, there's a long tradition of seeing who can have the largest electric bill during the month of December. And so you can't buy a house on that street and just put a little simple wreath on your door. No, you've got to light it up. And yet there are other neighborhoods, if you move in and you overdo it, They'll call you one of those holiday persons, and they'll be, well, they're a little bit nervous that you're going to observe every single holiday, like National Oysters Rockefeller Day, January the 10th, or National Bicarbonate of Soda Day, actually December the 30th. Just let one full holiday pass before you decide how much decorations you're going to do. Play it in the middle until you figure out your neighbor. Loving your neighbor. In chapter 12 last week, we saw the Apostle Paul instruct the church concerning how to relate to the world of unbelievers. Those whose primary citizenship is not in the kingdom of God, but rather in the Roman Empire. To those whose Lord is Caesar, Caesar and not the Christ. Now chapter 13 actually continues these instructions. Here, Paul tries to tell Christians how they are to exist, coexist peacefully with governmental authorities and why they should do so. 
Now, you remember that chapters and versification aren't in Paul's original letter, that someone just chose to break it up between chapter 12 and chapter 13. And most scholars argue there shouldn't be a break here between the end of chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13 because it continues the same topic that is overarchingly described in Romans 12, 18. And as far and as much as it depends on you, live at peace with all men. Here, Paul is telling the church that they may be free from the Jewish law, which was fulfilled in the Christ event, but they're not free from the civil law of Rome. They called upon to respect the authorities that govern them. Now, Paul concludes chapter 13 by calling upon us to love our neighbor, reminding us that the coming of the real king, the real Christ, is just around the corner. Well, let's divide chapter 13 into three segments. First of all, verses 1 through 7, respect authority. 1 through 7, respect authority. Look at verse 1. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing, for it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also because of conscience' sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. Now, this same writer, Paul, in his letter to the church at Philippi says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul knows that ultimately our citizenship is in another kingdom. That is, as Christians, our ultimate allegiance is to the kingdom of God and not to a country. Well, we even have another king, a King Jesus. But in the meantime, in the here and now, we are called upon to subject ourselves to God's governing authority, even when the rulers are pagan. He chooses his words carefully. He asks us to submit. He doesn't command us to obey. Those are two different words in the Greek text. Submission is yielding to another one willingly, out of respect. Obedience, on the other hand, can be compelled by force whether one is inclined to obey or not. One decides to submit, which leaves the door open for believers not to do so. They decide in good conscience they cannot obey a government's ungodly order. When would it be okay not to obey a government's authority? Well, let me give you an example. When the evil scheme of Adolf Hitler was on the rise in Germany, the National Socialist Union of Protestant Pastors issued the Ansbach Memorandum 
the fourth thesis of which bluntly supported Adolf Hitler. I quote, As Christians, we honor with gratitude to God every ordering of society and thus every authority, even in disfigurement. The history and the measurable atrocities of Adolf Hitler's Third Reich shows how mistaken the pastors were in submitting to the Fuhrer who embodied evil itself. In most cases, however, even when the authority is pagan, Christians all the time their conscience will allow should submit. He gives reasons why. Notice, all authority is from God. And God has instituted the civil authorities to govern civic affairs. Most broadly, Paul's worldview is like the Jewish worldview found in Proverbs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Daniel, that God has placed governing powers, even pagan powers at times, to bring humanity to right where God wants us to be. The rise and the fall of nations and kings is governed by God. Now, Paul himself, had had mixed results in submitting himself to the Roman government. You remember back in Corinth when the Jews were accusing him that proconsul Gallio set him free from the charges? That worked well for Paul. But then think about Philippi and the other couple of times that he was beaten severely with rods. In fact, in Acts 16, he says how unjust the Roman government had been to him to beat him with rods, and he was a Roman citizen. But Paul's arguments are bigger than his own personal results. Paul is saying that God is not a God of disorder, but rather of peace. But you also can read between the lines, can't you? You're smart enough to do that. Paul has actually demoted Caesar in this chapter, hasn't he? He doesn't specifically mention the emperor by name or by title. Thus, he demotes him to the rank of any other governing authority of the day that God puts in power. Secondly, these governing authorities belong to the undifferentiated, finite political powers to derive their existence from the supreme authority. They are from God, established by God. God alone is supreme, not Caesar, not any other government authority. And how many times in the Old Testament does God use even kings of a pagan empire to drive the history of humanity towards its own purposes? God can raise up Pharaoh who denies God's very existence to display God's own glory. Verse 3. God desires order and justice in the world over anarchy and lynch mobs. Paul is urging Christians to be good neighbors in their communities, in their countries, and as good citizens behaving in such a way as they will be seen as good members of the community. Doing what is good heads off unwanted negative attention, but also paves the way for the church to be a good witness in the community in which she dwells. Now in verse 5, notice, he brings up the idea of conscience. Do it for conscience sake. Not only do we submit to avoid the wrath of the government, but also Christians ought to live with a clear conscience. A clear conscience leads one to act honorably in all things, says the writer of Hebrews. But the idea of bringing up conscience also lifts the idea 
that there might be a time and a place when civilly Christians cannot, in good conscience, obey the governing authorities. When would that happen? Do you remember when Peter and John were arrested in Acts for preaching the story of Jesus? And the governing power, the Sanhedrin, told them to be silent. You remember what they say, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God, you decide, but we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and what we have heard. And when they're out of prison again, when they're about to be arrested, they say, we must obey God and not human authority. They refused to be silenced because of their conscience, even for the Sanhedrin. There's a time and a place for civil disobedience, but make it rare and choose carefully, Paul proclaims. Paul tells them to pay their taxes, verse 7, echoing the words of Jesus in Mark chapter 12. Perhaps we need to be reminded that the gospel was, was spread on Roman roads. And yes, the building of the Roman roads made it easy for the Roman Empire to administrate and expand. But also those same roads were used by missionaries to carry the good news of Jesus throughout the Roman Empire. Give honor to whom honor is due, not worship, but honor. There are several groups in, in Scripture we're told to honor. We're told in 1 Peter to honor our wives and honor fellow believers in Romans 12 and honor the less honored members of the church body in 1 Corinthians 12. And then in Exodus 8, Moses even honored Pharaoh. Polycarp was a disciple of John the Apostle. He tells the proconsul of Asia, we've been taught to give honor to magistrates and authorities appointed by God as it is fitting. The authorities are only owed honor, not absolute obedience, and only God is owed our ultimate allegiance. Paul wants the Christians in Rome to be model citizens, Attracting unfavorable attention from governing authorities would hinder the Christian mission. And Paul knew that every time the Jews rose up against Rome, it was disastrous for God's people. Have we ever lived in a day when authority figures were more disrespected than now? Can you think of a day like today? You remember once upon a time that parents taught their children to respect authority like Paul is teaching the church. And I mean all appropriate authorities. Children were taught to respect policemen and principals and monarchs and mayors and generals and judges and teachers and tribal chiefs. But with the demise of civility in our culture, we no longer teach our children to respect authority. We teach them to question authority, even disrespect. I could choose any of those locations just for argument's sake. I'm going to choose our school teachers. The reality is many of our school teachers across this nation ought to be receiving combat pay for the way they are treated today. Who the blankety-blank are you? Are you some blankety-blank sub? Profane questions. Yes, gutter profanity. I can't even quote here in the pulpit a student says after school one day, directed toward a teacher in the hallway. Disrespect is on the rise. A Google survey by the Shaker High, the student news organization, the public high school in Shaker Heights, Ohio, said that 62% of teachers have been verbally abused in the classroom. 
teachers subjected to racial and ethnic slurs, being called a swear word by a student, being targeted of vulgar language, being yelled at, and even receiving threats of violence. Should teachers just simply look to parents to help? Well, that won't work. In many instances, the students are threatening to use their family. My uncle will find you, one student said to her teacher. Sophomore Julia Schmidt Palumbo said students act out because they don't like authority. They don't like authority. Seems to me that a community must set the tone for how teachers to be treated way back in kindergarten. Like the referee who blows his whistle, calling fouls early in the basketball game. Well, set the tone that teachers in our community will be respected. Parents play a role in setting that tone. I found a Christian basketball league much like our upper league. The pastor there, Tim Goodpaster, sits all the players in the middle of the court and he shares with them about Jesus and literally invites them to come to Jesus at the end. And then he turns and tells them that the referees are volunteer and everybody needs to uh, respect the authority of the referee during the game, that disrespect will not be tolerated. It seems like such a little thing, but it matters. Our failure to show appropriate amounts of respect for those in positions of authority, even officials at a kid's basketball game, sets a poor example for those who are observing us. It sends a message to our kids, doesn't it? And unfortunately, our kids... Well, they look at our attitudes and our actions more than they look at our words. We say don't, but our actions say do. Maybe we're all today need to be, find ourselves at center court with Pastor Tim Goodpaster, be called to meet Jesus in our own hearts. And yes, yours truly is fully guilty of that he accuses. Number two, don't only respect authority, but love your neighbor. Look at verse eight. Owe nothing to anyone except love to one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law for this. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there are any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to the neighbor. Love, therefore, is the fulfillment of the law. The title of the sermon today is summing it up or summed up. How do you summarize the 613 some odd laws of the Old Testament? Simply this, love your neighbor. It begins, notice verse 8, with love for the church, love for one another. Then it grows out to love for the neighbor. I was taking an hour's brisk walk around the neighborhood trying to lift up the heart rate on the old Apple Watch, and I was several streets over from my street. Little boy, maybe four, maybe three, was out playing in his front yard. He runs up to me while I'm trying to do this fast-paced walk, and he asked me the most sincere question. He looks up puzzled and said, are you my neighbor? Are you my neighbor? Now, don't worry. Mother Bear was not far behind there at the door, are you my neighbor? What did he mean? Do you care about me? Mister, are we friends? Can you come over and play someday after school? Am I going to get to ever know you? Can I count on you when life gets rough? Are you somebody there for me? Mister, I just want to know, are you my neighbor? 
Of course, Paul's words take us back to Luke chapter 10. A certain lawyer stood up and tried to test Jesus and said, What do I have to do, Rabbi, to get to heaven? How do I get there? And Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all that you have and love your neighbor as yourself. And the lawyer tried to lessen the rule of love. And he said, Well, exactly then, who is my, my neighbor? And Jesus tells the story of a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, falling among the robbers and being stripped and beaten, left half dead. The religious passerby, the priest, walks on the other side, pretending not to notice. And likewise, a Levite, another religious authority, ignores the victim by veering around him. Eventually, a hated half-breed of Samaritan, perennial enemy of the Jews, sees the victim, has compassion, bandages up the wounds, anoints him with medicine and carries in the wounded man to the end for care. And Jesus asks, which one of these... Do you think proves to be the neighbor, the man who fell into the robber's hands? Go and do the same. Are you my neighbor? The law really is summed up with those words, isn't it? If you love your neighbor, you won't murder him. If you love your neighbor, you won't steal from him. If you love your neighbor, you won't simply see her as an object for your sexual pleasure. If you just love, you will fulfill the commandments to others. Well, the chapter ends with a third section. Wake up, verses 11 through 14. Look at these. Wake up. Do this, knowing the time, that is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we, when we believed. The night is almost gone. The day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave properly as in the day and not carousing in drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh regarding its lust. Can you imagine living in two time zones at the same time? And Nicosia Cyprus, Tamur, and her husband Michaelis have to set two clocks in their home. Each clock on a different time zone set one hour apart. Tamor is a 35-year-old driving instructor. She lives on the south side of the island, but she works on the north side. And she says, my phone and all my digital appliances are set in southern time, but our TV satellite box and my car clock are set on northern time. What a nightmare. It gives a whole new meaning to what time is it when it's two times at the same time every time you ask in Nicosia, Cyprus. How could you live that way? This island in the eastern Mediterranean Sea, the Republic of Cyprus, like the rest of Europe, moves the clocks back with an hour with the end of daylight savings time. But the leaders of the northern Cyprus opted against this. They followed Turkey and said it just causes too much confusion. So they refused to change their clocks to follow suit with Europe. Well, now Nicosia Cyprus holds a world distinction is the only world capital that follows two time zones at the same time. And both husband and wife say they have no idea what to do on New Year's Eve. <laughs> I know what I'd do. I'd cel celebrate by the early clock and then go to bed. <laughs> Some people celebrate at one time zone, then they cross through the time buffer, whatever that is, and celebrate New Year's all over again. Hold on. 
Well, when the return of daylight savings time, the Cypriots will all once again, for a little while, be on one time zone again. That'd be a nightmare, wouldn't it? But that's exactly the way we are as Christians. We live by an earthly clock and a cosmic clock. Now in a closing move, Paul links ethics to eschatology, how we behave, loving our neighbor, not stealing, committing adultery, and honoring authorities is all related to the fact that Christ is going to return and must find his people obedient. And they know that Christ will come like a thief in the night. It's the idea of suffering and hoping and waiting and suffering and hoping and waiting. And time will come when both the cosmic clock and the earthly clock combine to be one clock. And then we'll all simply be on divine time. He makes a comparison between sleeping and waking, night and day, darkness and light, drunkenness and sobriety. All these communicate that we never know when he's going to come. That when age, the new age, when the time zone of Central Texas, Central Standard Time is the same as the cosmic time, divine time, when the kingdom of God arrives. And therefore, all governing authorities are lame ducks, for the real king is coming, and their days are numbered. How would it change you if you woke up every day and thought, today might be the day that Christ returns. With the first coming of Christ, the second coming is near, Paul says. How did it change your life to wake up every day and think to yourself, today might just be the day? Respect authority as much as your conscience will allow. Love your neighbor, for if you treat your neighbor with love, you won't break any of the other commandments against him or her. And always look at the clock and know the cosmic clock will collide with the earthly clock and we'll be on divine time when Christ returns. Look always anxiously for the return of our Lord. Let us pray. Oh God, Remind us of the need to respect authorities in our life. To know that they are yours in place to govern, to lead, to guide for the good. Help us to be reminded to love our neighbor just as we love ourselves. Indeed, we are neighbors to this world. And remind us, your day's coming. The day of the return of your son. Amen.